of Praxis Pedagogy podcast. Praxis Pedagogy exists to promote those who are honing their craft as educators. Life is an apprenticeship and we want to support a rising guild of educators across all disciplines and backgrounds who wish to center their praxis and their pedagogy on what really matters. And in this episode, Sally and I sit down and we chat about design thinking, specifically with looking forward to the next term. So when you hear this, the next term would be the winter term starting in January. This was a spinoff to a summit series that we're putting on for TVET faculty, so trades, vocational education and training faculty. And I did the first keynote and workshop around design thinking. And so we thought it'd be a good idea to do this episode on design thinking. I hope there's some value in it for you. I hope that uh, we spark some thoughts for you. I hope that we cause you to walk away with more questions than with what you came. All of those are great things. I will leave the links to what I've mentioned in the show notes on the website. You can find those show notes and links at praxispedagogy.com. Thanks again for taking the time to listen. We really appreciate you being here. We'll catch you on the other side. Welcome back to Practice Pedagogy Podcast. This podcast uh, exists. Oh, I'll just cut that out. <laughs> I usually put I it in at the beginning, it but I'm does like, exist. It exists. Yes, it exists. We um, exist. We exist. It's been a long week. What can we say? It's been a long week. It's only day two. Anyway, um, yeah, this episode we're going to talk about design thinking. So, Sally, you're here. Um, Chad is still on assignment. We're uh, we're eagerly anticipating his return. So that would be great. Chad, we miss you. We need, we need you back here, buddy. And um, so today's episode, we're going to talk about design thinking. And it's by the time people hear this episode, we will have already started the Trade Summit series which is designed for trades faculty um, or TVET faculty, let's be more specific, trades vocational education training um, faculty and helping them get their head around a couple things uh, about the next term coming up. So things like design thinking, uh, which we're going to do today. Uh, Sally, you're leading a session in that series about backwards mm-hmm. design. Yeah, I am which we've spent a little tiny bit of time in previous episodes, especially with Jesse Chalmers when we're talking about authentic assessments. And so if anybody wants to touch base on backwards design after this episode, go back and listen to Jesse Chalmers. That was a a couple excellent episodes. And so uh, you're going to be doing that. And then Nicole, Nikki from Mm -hmm. Coast Mountain College is going to be doing some authentic assessment. And then Lucy is going to be doing uh, a perspective on synchronous and asynchronous teaching. Yeah, the lovely Lucy. Lovely yeah. Lucy. And, uh, <laughs> it's going to be awesome. And um, so by the time people listen to this, we'll have already been one week in. And uh, I would have delivered the design thinking keynote and the workshop. And so Excellent. here we go. You ready? Yeah. yeah, I'm excited about this. I think that design thinking is um you know it's a term that you hear 
a lot and you see used, um, you know, frequently, but I get the sense that there's, you know, has different meanings to different people. And yeah, so I'm ready for, yeah, ready to hear all about it. All right, buckle up. So here we go. Um, you're right. Design thinking has many different, um, well, I think people interact with it, define it differently from their different perspectives. I bumped into design thinking first because I'm a systems thinking nerd. I, I love systems thinking theory. I love the Kinefin theory. I love polarity management theory. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very passionate about teams and collaboration and I bumped into design thinking primarily through a book and the book was written by Gallagher and Thord Essen. And I hope I'm pronouncing that last name correctly. And the name of the book, and I'll, I'll leave a link in the show notes. The name of the book is called design thinking for school leaders. And I picked up the book because at the time I was the chief instructor slash program head of my department. And we were looking at, some significant changes that were coming towards us primarily through our industry training authority. So there's going to be some restructuring of, of our terms. And so, yeah, we were facing some significant changes and I bought this book thinking, okay, this is really going to help me through this. And man, it was a great book. Oh, it was such a good book. And then that got me down the path of thinking, okay, well, there's going to be more on this design thinking. And sure enough, um, there's a bunch of schools in the States that have grab design thinking and run with it. The Stanford Design School is one of them. They're, they're famously known for putting together a, a workshop for educators on design thinking. And I'll leave a link in the show notes for that as well. But if I was to really break down the idea of design thinking, it's really a process for problem solving, specifically complex problems. And for people who are systems thinkers, they will, they will sometimes balk at that statement because complexity by nature is almost undefinable and unsolvable. If that's even a term, unsolvable. I think it is <laughs> it's, now. It's difficult to solve. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah I'm, I'm good at that. I'm good at making up words. <laughs> difficult for us to solve. Yeah, yes. that's right. Um, so by nature, things that are complex are hard to solve, if, if not impossible to solve. So what we do is we find tweaks and, and, and areas that we can make changes in and then the system will change in response to those things. So <clears throat> I'm not sure if it's a, an, it's a pathway to solving complex problems. I, I certainly uh, believe that it's a process to help you change complex problems and, and adapt easier to complex problems. And let me, let me, start off by saying there's, there's really about, there's really four myths about change. Cause we're really talking about change management as well. When mm -hmm. we're talking about design thinking. I love the way that you've connected this to, you, you know, your, your um, lead into this was driven by an ITA change. And over the years I've listened and experienced as well, the impact that has on a department when there's a significant change coming out from the industry training authority. So I love that you've made that connection already as uh, you know, a need for looking at a framework such as this. Thanks. So, so there, there's four myths that circle around change. Cause like I said, it really, when we're looking at any kind of 
problem. It, it, it requires some change. And so the, the first myth is, is that we're taking a giant leap into the unknown. We don't know what we don't know. And to a certain extent, that can be true, but it's really a myth because the process helps you break down those components of the complex problem to help you understand them easier. The second myth is that there's never enough time, help, or buy-in from other people. And so when we're looking at change management um, situations, one of, the, one of the perspectives that I keep running into from other faculty is, I don't have enough time to do this. I, I just simply don't have the bandwidth. I don't have the capacity. Um, or my associate dean will not buy into this. My program head ha- will have a problem with this. And it's like, mm, okay, maybe, maybe, but it doesn't necessarily need to be a systemic involvement of everybody on all levels. And I'll talk about that in the fourth myth. Okay. The third one is that there's a clear path and a simple answer. That's a myth. There's never a clear path. There's never a simple answer. Because if you're, if you're looking at this through the lens of Kinefin, and I'll leave a link to the Kinefin framework, the Kinefin framework says that most of us operate in the complicated and the complex realms. Complicated, if I was to define complicated a little bit, complicated means a lot of steps, but they're linear in fashion. So one of, one of the best things that I used to describe that is, you know, taking an engine out of a vehicle. There are very specific things that you need to do from A to Z to get that engine out of the car. When you take the, another engine and put it back in the car, you're essentially reversing that process. So it's A to Z, Z to A. It's, it's complicated, but it's not complex because complicated is very linear and pretty much one dimensional. And it sounds like it, you know, you're really resting on procedural knowledge yes. there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So the complex realm, however, takes that complicated approach and multiplies it by layers. So you will have three or four complicated things happening at the same time and heading in different directions. I, I'm going to hop in there because I heard this lovely term yesterday that I think um, applies here, and they describe complexity as a family of situations. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's very much true. Because there's, if we if we use that language in the complicated realm, the way I understand the framework in the complicated realm, the the relationships are linear. So if you make a change at B, it's going to affect D and E and J and K. In, in the complex realm, the relationships are layered. And so it's like when you have a circle of friends and you have three friends and then you bring in a fourth person, you're not just simply adding another person to the, to the community. In essence, you're multiplying the relationships that are going on in, in that group of four people. That's what's happening in the complex realm. And so there's never a clear path and a simple answer in the complex. The complicated, I would say, there are sometimes clear pathways. The, the answers may not be simple, but there's clear pathways. In the complex realm, not so much. And so, and it doesn't take much to go from complexity into chaos. And in fact, the Kinefin, it's, it's true. The Kinefin framework calls it a cliff. 
And most of us operate in the complex realm right near that cliff. And oftentimes we get pushed from complexity into chaos. And so the chaos just becomes like, you know, dark matter. It's, it's just, you don't, you don't want to be in there. Right. Some people. I'm just listening to this, just thinking, how have I got through life without knowing this? Like, I've lived this. Um, if, so if the power goes out now, there's no hope this, for me because yeah. I'm not going to know. The end. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so, and, and, and there are some people who like operating in the chaos realm because they, they, they love the ambiguity. They love the uncertainty. They love, um, they love the fact that there's no predictability. See, in complexity, there's a certain amount of predictability. In complexity, there's a, there's a large degree of predictability. In chaos, there's no predictability. Um, and some people like that. And then the other, the, the, the first quadrant is called the simple. And so the Kinefin framework would say that if you've fallen into chaos, the best way to get back to your original spot is to go back to the simple realm, look at, all, look at things from a simple perspective, and then start building back your your experience. <clears throat> so there's the myth four talks about there's no clear path and no simple answer. So that, that takes a lot of pressure off of us to, to find a common solution for everybody. And so we take the context of trades. There's a wide spectrum of trades from automotive to welding, from hairstylist to steam fitter to welder to uh, carpenter. You know, there's, there's a, there's a multiple, um, well, I'm stumbling over my words. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a multiplicity of, of trades that have some commonality, but there's a lot of it that's different. Yeah, and I think they get, lay, I think, you know, this is one of the things we've just discussed before, isn't it? The label of trades kind of shields as such that complexity that lives within each of those trades. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Without a doubt. For sure. Um, and then that leads me to the last myth is that change must happen at the top first. And that's a myth. Now there's, there's, there's truisms in there, right? That if we're looking at some significant change, you need to have the top buy-in. And so the top could be defined as your program head, your chief instructor, your associate dean, your dean. It could even be as high as your vice president of academic or an associate vice president. And so they need to be involved, but it doesn't have to start there. In fact, most changes in education that I'm aware of have started at the grassroots level, which is, which is very powerful because that puts a lot of capacity and ownership. And I hate using the word control, but some, I'm going to use it here. It puts a lot of control into the hands of faculty. Yeah, and it's that notion of lead from where you sit, exactly. isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I like that. And so when we look at change, uh, specifically changing, you know, uh, some curriculum or a course that we're going to that we're going to deliver and we're, and we're going to employ some design thinking, change requires influencers. So those influencers could be faculty. Those influencers could be department heads, program heads, chief instructors. Those influencers could be associate deans. And we've had the spectrum of that even on this show. We've had associate deans who are very good at influencing change. 
we've had faculty members who are very good at influencing change. And so the, the, there's three parts to change the way I look at it. There's the influencer, there's the strategy itself where design thinking comes into play. And then there's the culture piece. And we can't ignore the culture piece when it comes to change because we live in the culture, right? And so one of the things I'm sure you've heard it, I've heard it, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard it is that we've never done it that way before. So why should we change now? Oh gosh, I think we've heard lots of that. Not so much this year though, have we? (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. And let's, let's rewind it. Let's go back a year, not even, you know, February, let's go back a year when I was having conversations with faculty members about hybrid delivery. Yeah. Oh, you can't do that with trades. Mm-hmm. We, we can't do hybrid delivery. Oh, hello. <laughs> hello. Yes. Where are we now? Um, yeah. And so. Yeah. The pushback was, uh, was huge. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. yeah and, I, and I still think there's some, there's some undercurrent to that thought still here, right? Where there's, I'm sure that there are pockets of faculty members who are waiting for a return to what we had before. I, I, I think that they'll be disappointed, but I know that there's yeah, pockets of them there. So. so there's, there's the influencer, there's the culture and there's the strategy. Those, those three keys I think drive change. So what I'm really driving at Sally with this middle piece to this design thinking episode is really, it's a mindset over methodology. It's a mindset over methodology. So you write mindset, you write a line underneath it, and then you write methodology underneath it. So it becomes like a fraction, right? Or a ratio. I like to describe these things in ratios. We can have the best methodology in the world, but if the mindset's not there, it's not going to work, right? Not going to work. We, we, all of us bump into that all the time. And not just in education, in our kids too. Right, you try. You, you think you have the best approach to, to to a certain thing, and and if the mindset's not there, it's not going to work. And so, um, and, the, and the reverse is true. If you have a mindset but no methodology, it's going to take you a lot of time. It's going to create a lot of frustration, right? And so, it's it's a it's a specific ratio. And so, design thinking has a couple components to it. Before I get into the nuts and bolts of it, the the biggest component that I like about it is the radical collaboration piece and um, people who want to listen to the whole keynote that that I've delivered for the trade summit um, I'll put a link in the show notes that they can go and listen to that keynote um, because some of the stuff that I'm talking about today is part of the keynote but the, the thing that I really love about design thinking is its radical collaborative approach and before I get into that kind of radical collaboration, and I'll break that down what I mean by radical collaboration, is we actually go through a process where we develop a team charter um, so that we understand that we're operating in a place of safety uh, and some transparency. I don't call it 100% transparency because I don't believe we are 100% transparent at any moment. I think we strive for it, and I think there are more people mm-hmm. who are better at it than others but I've stopped asking for hundred percent transparency. I've, I'm start asking for, give me the best transparency that you can in this moment. Okay. Nice. Um, and what I found is that actually starts building trust with people because they're thinking, okay, you're not asking me to jump out of the boat. You're just asking me to dip my leg into the water. Right. And that's good. Let's, let's just start there. Yeah. The radical collaborative piece for me means 
we're willing to throw everything out except the baby, right? So we're willing to change the bathwater, but we, we, we need to keep this, this thing that's so important to us, important to us, but we need to approach it differently. And the radical collaborative piece now means uh, we're willing to work together towards finding a solution that we may not have thought of before, or we may have previously thought was quite simply and crudely idiotic. Right. <laughs> we go on. Feel like feel like I'm teaching a class right now, but I know I'm loving this. Like <laughs> I, I mean, this is so unusual for me to sit here and just listen. Yeah. But as you're going through this, and you're going through certain stages of it, and I'm just thinking mindset methodology, and I'm flashing back. It's like my whole life is flashing in front of me. You're <laughs> speaking and thinking, yeah, I had the mindset there, mm-hmm. but no methodology. Yeah, and actually. That would be a bit like my PhD journey. I had the right mindset, <laughs> but not the clear pathway to getting to the end, which yeah. I think is the nature of that. Mm-hmm. But yes, yeah, I'm hooked. I'm hooked. Okay. All right. Here we Te- go. So, teach away. <laughs> here we go. Um, so when we look at the, the, I guess, the traditional perspective of design thinking, there's several stages that design thinking goes through. And um, the first one is what they call empathize, okay? And as tradespeople, specifically like hardcore tradespeople, like, you know, pipe fitters and welders and carpenters and plumbers, we have a hard time with this word empathize because we think it's too woo-woo, we think it's too fluffy. But really the, the, the empathizing comes from just an understanding of where we are and what's going on around us and then asking ourselves the question, what are our students going through? What is their experience when they come to class? And some faculty members will say, I don't care what their experience is. This is what they signed up for. This is how I learned. This is how I'm going to teach. And they just need to suck it up sunshine and go through it. So there's more work with the empathy there. But there's, there's an empathizing that happens not just with the object that we're looking at, namely curriculum or, or a course. Uh, but there's also the student perspective, okay? Then there's an interpretive piece after the empathizing. So there's empathizing and then there's interpreting. And the interpreting means you're looking at everything that you've written down and thought through about the empathizing and you're beginning to ask questions, why is that the way it is? And you begin asking that, that probably five, six, even up to nine times. I, it's, I call it why times nine. Like the question why times nine. Ask that question nine times. Why is that like that? And then you'll get an answer. And it's like, okay, so why is that like that? And then you'll get a different answer. And what I found, it's like, it's like the Shrek movie. It's like an onion. You just start peeling the layers back <laughs> yeah. and you get at the core, right? And, and find out that it is because it's always been that way and mm-hmm. it's always been that way for many generations. Sure. But then you say, okay, so, but why has it been that way? Right. And, and I always, and I love the appreciative inquiry that, that is the bedrock to this whole process. Cause you're not coming at the process and saying everything sucks and you're going to throw everything out the window, but you're really asking yourself, why does this work? Why doesn't that work? Why does this work well for you? Why do you feel this is the best way? And so it's really just about questioning and being curious. 
Um, so after the interpretive piece, then they, then there's this section called ideate. And so ideate means you start thinking through solutions. And again, remembering one of the myths that there's no clear path and no simple solution, there will not be one answer here in the ideate part or the ideation mm. piece. There, you'll probably have three, four, five, maybe even more possible solutions to a specific problem. Now, in design thinking, they call it a wicked problem. And, you know, we, we could call everything in, in what we do wicked problems. But um, when we're looking at solving a, an issue, like let's say we're looking at, you know, designing our course for the next term, the ideation comes into how, how can I do this piece differently? And, and then, okay, well, what's another way I can do this? What's another way I can do this? And to some degree, you see UDL pr principles coming into play here. Universal yes. Design for Learning Principles. Yes, yes, yes. There's many different paths into the brain. So I can say this, I can show this, I can have them work on this, and, and I can scaffold or I can spiral if we want to use some of the terminology mm -hmm. that's out there. But it's, it's all these different ideas at approaching this one concept. I love the idea that there's a freedom around exploring these um, solutions, like actually going into, um, you know, this change management approach, but with this awareness that, yeah, we're exploring this solution. We're not going to stop there. Even if we think it's brilliant, we're going to explore another one. And I think that must be very empowering if you have the right mindset. I mean, I'm, I'm still wondering what at this stage of the game, what do you do with those people that are still saying they don't want anything to do with it? But yeah. that's maybe a different conversation. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, answer, <laughs> I'll answer that question simply by saying um, whenever I've had people in the room during this process who have come in with that mindset of, I don't, you know, there's, there's nothing to change. This is the way it's done. This is the way I'm going to do it. What I say to them usually is, okay no problem. Just observe, just watch, um, and, and see what happens. And then if you still feel the same way at the end of the process, okay, I'm good, but I'm, I'm willing to bet that your perspective will shift at some point. Um, because there's, there's a, there's a gravitational pull in this because as, as humans, we're social creatures. We need connection. Some of us need less of it. Some of us need more of it but we need connection and we are designed to be collaborative. We are designed in some degree of, uh, or another to have ideas bounce off of us or have our ideas bounce off other, other people. I mean, that's, that's some people say that's how the evolutionary process works, right? Um, so the ideation piece is coming up with ideas. The next step is prototyping. And this is where the rubber hits the road. And for a lot of faculty, this is, this is, the, this is the, the, the aha moment where they go, okay, so you're talking about all the theory and we're talking about all these fancy things and we're writing all this stuff down, but when do I do this, right? Well, that's this next step. So you prototype it. So you actually build something. So let's say you're looking at a, uh, at a quiz, right? And you're saying, okay, so you go through all these different ideations of how can I get it? How can I deliver it? How can I word it differently? Can I use pictures? Can I use audio? You know, open book, closed book, whatever, all those things. Now you actually prototype it. 
And so you make one and you have them go through it or you have your peers look at it, which is, you know, a level of scrutiny that some people just don't want to deal with. But there's this idea of prototyping that you're, you, what you're putting out there, you know, is not the final product, but you're getting something out anyway. And this is where the connection to the tech industry uh, is really the most prevalent. And that's kind of where design thinking has come from is the tech industry. So when we're looking at, at those people who design apps, for instance, they're very quick at getting the app out to the world. Okay. They call it beta testing because what they want is they want the feedback. They want to know where the bugs are. They want, they want the masses of, of humanity to help them build the final product. That's what they're doing. And then we get sucked into it by signing up for the free trial period, right? Every time. Every time, right? <laughs> yeah. So we prototype. We pro and, and, and what that means is you, you build something and you put it out. And, and then the, the next section is what we call uh, the test section. And so the test section is actually when people bring it back to you. And they say, this worked, this didn't work. Or you look at it and go, you know, out of 10 questions, questions three to seven, everybody got wrong. And so you begin asking yourself, well, why? Why did they get them all wrong? Why was there such a low percentage of people getting those questions right? And this is, this is the part that really excites me about design thinking is the iterative piece. Now you go back to the prototype. And you take, you take the information that you've got from the testing um, sphere or the testing level. You take a step back to the prototype level and you make tweaks, you make some changes <clears throat> and then you put that back out into the world. And so that there's this iterative process and some would even say, and I, I could even make a, a good argument that you would go all the way back to the ideation piece, then prototype, then test back to ideation, prototype, test. And so that there's some iterations that happen there. And then at the end of it, you review the whole thing. So for me, when I took over a level and I did this when I taught level two and level four, uh, in my, in my piping department, I taught levels two plumbing and level four plumbing. I took a year to get used to the system, to get used to the content and to do all this testing. So I, I would build something and give it to the class. I'd work on it and I would get it back and I go, Oh, that sucked. That, that really, that really fell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or this really worked. And so at the end of the year, I had all these notes that I would review and I would start implementing big change after that one year. And more often than not, that provided a lot of stability and success for me in level two and level four. And we may not have a year to do the process. We may have weeks, right? That's okay. Cause you and I say this all the time and people who've done research understand this data is data, whether you have a small amount or a large amount. Right. And so you, the review process is important because you, you, you can even go all the way back to the empathizing beginning and saying, did I even have the right perspective at the empathizing stage? Did I understand the problem well enough? And you may find that when you get to the review stage, you may even find that when you're in the prototyping stage that you didn't understand the problem correctly at the beginning. And so you're, now you're already making changes before you get to the review. 
But the main point of the review is to take you back to the beginning and say, okay, did, did I, did I understand it correctly? Did I interpret it correctly? Did we, did we do enough in the idea stage to get enough ideas down? Um, maybe there's some ideas that you didn't try that you just left on the chalkboard or the whiteboard or on the wall with your sticky notes. You just left them there and said, Oh, I'll come back to those later. Now you come back to them and say, is there any validity in these still? And that's the design thinking process. You know what? This is just, I think this, you know how in life things have a way of coming along at the right time, or maybe you notice them at the right time. But I'm just thinking about, you know, 2020, as we all know, (laughs) the complexity of 2020. And I'm thinking about the pivot to online that took place back there in March, where we had, you know, instructors who, had we, well, having a conversation a year earlier or like myself developing the, the level two hairstylist and having it completely asynchronous or the first 12 weeks of it asynchronous and the pushback and the lack of buy-in and, and really hearing all those voices of why it wouldn't work. Um, but there was also, there was no I think that motivation piece, there was nothing happening in surrounding that, you know, the, the actual, you know, anybody immersed in that system at the time, there was nothing telling them that you need to look in this direction and look at change. And then we saw that happen this year. And so rapidly, many of these steps were missed. They had to be missed. They, it was just there was a need and the need was happening a week on Monday and you needed to get in there. But now using this framework to look back, and, and I'm, I'm sure I'm disrupting the whole idea of design thinking here, but, you know, we know our colleagues have all been forced through all of these steps are all forced to leapfrog many of these steps, but to go back now and review what they've done, the changes they've made coming all the way back to that. First of all, you know, that's that first stage where your, um, your empathy, you're doing your appreciative inquiry, but actually thinking now, what was I trying to do? What were the problems that I was solving? And coming in there, I think that that ideate stage now would be so vibrant with people that have been through this year. Yeah, so it seems to me like it's really good timing to, mm-hmm. to, to come forward with this. Yeah, it's, it's, you're right. It's, it's, the timing is, is cool. And, you know, like we said earlier, we're, we've just started the trade summit series. And so we would have delivered, I would have delivered this keynote already and gone through the workshop and the workshops designed to take people deeper into the keynote and to actually have them work through the, the empathizing, the ideation, some, even some prototypes, right. And then release them for the rest of the month to start the testing and to get, and to get the information back. And, um, this is why I love design thinking so much about and, and the radical collaborative process because it's not, it's not regulated to just you. Like, can you imagine if you sat down with three or four of your peers, even if they're from different institutions and we've had this common experience called COVID flip our boat over and we've all had different 
success stories and horror stories through the, the last six, seven, eight months. If we were to just sit down, not only share those stories, but then ask ourselves some important questions that help reframe and help us uh, empathize a little better, help us interpret things a little differently, help maybe even change the mindset you're now in a better position to create the methodology to move forward. Cause at, at first it was all about, I don't have time like this. Th- you want me to take all of this and shove it online in, you know, 48 hours. I can't do that. And the system should have said, yeah, we know, we know you can't do that right now. It can be done later. Mm-hmm. Right. And we'll do it in smaller chunks, but you know, you have to do it now. And we understand that. And, and I'm pretty sure that there were some people who, yeah, we're fortunate enough to go through that process and have their people say, you know what, we know you can't do it in, in 48 hour turnaround, yeah. but do your best. And, and we have time to shore up as we move along. Um, so the radical collaboration piece is massive. The other thing that I, that I really like about it, other than the bias towards action is the process, what I call the mindfulness of process. And just like, uh, like I, I love cooking. And, and there are, I don't use recipes. Like I'll read a recipe, but I never use a recipe. And some people freak out about that. Like I have friends that they follow the recipe to the, the comma, right? I don't do that. I just, I read it and I go, okay, that, that's great, but I'm going to do it this way. But being mindful of process, like knowing what should go first, what comes next, what, what goes last and, and how do you, how do you present and all that other stuff that, that the process, being mindful of the process is just as important as churning the material out and getting it online or making that rubric or making that exam or making that case study. The process piece is so important because you get a bigger picture of it. You understand how these pieces fit together better than you probably ever have before. And I can see how, you know, just listening to you today and 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 your your lived experience of design thinking. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I can go ahead and read the book and, you know, I'm really looking forward to the session, but by the time anybody hears this, we'll have had that great (laughs) session. Um, But I'm thinking about how this does apply to all aspects of our life and what I'm, you know, I'm all about, like, I love it when I think about having tools, having tools that allow you to deal with different situations and allow you to be, to look at them in a way that you can see. It's not going to be easy. The complexity is going to be there. It's going to be messy, but just knowing this allows yourself time to go through those stages and really the mindfulness of it all. And, and, and like you say, peeling that onion, seeing the layers and just even recognizing your own beliefs around some of those layers and how mistaken you can be. And um, yeah, the, the idea that this is this iterative process that you're, you know, it's that idea of it going, repeating these stages, looking back at them, I think is a way that really allows us to look at some of the situations, especially in the year of 2020 that we face in our life. So as I'm listening to this and just thinking about, okay, the prototype this year for many may be around um, asynchronous learning. 
So then we get into the curriculum development piece. And yet curriculum development really sits in there in that prototype, you know. So that's another level of which tool are you going to use once you get into your prototype. But unless you situate that in a bigger framework, if you just address curriculum in isolation from your whole lived curriculum, then um, I think you've lost the complexity and probably just fall back into that procedural piece that you spoke about earlier, Tim, just the, you know, if you look at it just as something that, yeah, is complicated, it's procedural, but it's not, it's, this is the lived curriculum, isn't it? This is, and I think that design thinking really captures that this actually has so many avenues that you need to explore to bring back in. It's like a constellation, isn't it? Yeah. Constellation of interconnected <laughs> challenges. Yeah. That's right. Interstellar for education. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think it, it can really become a, f- a framework to increase your capacity as a faculty member um, because it forces you to think through all the different pieces and not just, and I know that a lot of us probably already do that, right? Because I think back into when I was, you know, putting stuff together before I came across the whole design thinking framework, I was kind of already doing some of this, right? So like, for instance, when I was putting together, you know, practical projects for our students, I'm already thinking through, okay, what can I do here? How can I do it here? Um, Let's try this. Let's change that. Uh, but the big piece that was missing for me was the empathy piece. And it, and I think it was important for me to, to crash into that and, and really just sit there for a while because it changed my perspective on everything. Once I got that down, if that makes sense. So, yeah. so before yeah. I would just say, okay, we're going to do this and I'm going to have you do this and we're going to test it this way. And, and this is going to be the result without ever asking why, right? Not other uh-huh. than because it fits the outline and I got to teach and I got to have a mark at the end of the day. Okay, okay, we get that. But without really asking what's this, what's, what is the apprentice going to experience? Why am I doing it this way? Why am I using this material? Yeah. Why am I doing this first rather than that first? Why am I doing it in teams of two? Why, not, why am I not doing it in teams of four? Yes, all of these decisions that I tend to think that we inherit when we begin as, you know, as instructors. And many of them, those questions have never been asked. And I think, you know, to start asking those questions, there's never been a time in, you know, education before where we've had, it's almost like we've got a fresh canvas. 2020 has given us a canvas. And to me, I think introducing design thinking to educators at this time, um, you know, is it's coming together. It's there. The tool is there at the right time. And it allows us, you know, all we need now is um, a 13th month this year that allows us <laughs> to sit there and just look back and go through the decisions that we've made this year, you know, kind of come up for air. But 
like you say, when you think about the fact that you were already doing many of these stages and I, as you were talking through them, I was thinking of the projects that I've led and many of these stages, but it's the stages that we miss. And if we don't force ourselves to go through that stage or through that, maybe not so much a stage, but that process that there are going to be gaps. And I imagine they would be those gaps could be alleviated. They're the ones that come back to bite us, aren't they? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Mm -hmm. Because we're so biased towards action, right? Like we just, we want to get out there. We want to start putting stuff out there. We want to, you know, we just, we just need to get it out there. Um, and, and it's really the, the, the sitting down and critically thinking through what am I going to do? Why am I doing it? How am I going to do it? Um, and what do I expect at the end is, is a critical component of, of the process. And I came across an article and I know I've been saying this a lot, but I'm, I'm going to share this in the notes as well. I came across an article titled the seven survival skills for careers, college, and citizenship. <laughs> and well, and then listen, listen to listen to these, right? Critical thinking and problem-based learning, collaborate, collaboration across networks, agility, initiative, communication, analyzing information, curiosity, right? Like, are those not, in essence, the core of our essential skills packages when we're looking at trades training? Are these not core competencies for us as faculty members? To, to begin growing in and, and, and leveraging. And even as collectives of departments across institutions, across the province, across the country, if we're not getting together and networking in a collaborative nature and being willing to ask critical thinking questions, then, you know, what do we, what do we need to, what are we doing? And so to, to wrap this up, <laughs> to, to wrap this up, um, we may need to do a, a backup episode to this uh, or a follow-up I episode to so. this. I think so. Um, is, is the, the design thinking process is not, is not a solution. It's a means to a solution. And that's, that's what really frameworks are all about. But it's, it's an important framework because it's transferable across almost every context, whether you're in TVET, whether you're in mathematics, whether you're in, another part of STEAM or you're in humanities or whatever you're in, this process is transferable across all contexts. And mm-hmm. so if there's one thing that I would leave with people uh, as we close today is to sit down and ask yourself the question, do I really understand what my students are going through when they come and sit through my class? Do I really understand what my students are going through? Ask that question seriously to yourself. And that, yeah. that's, that, will, that will set off the cascade, I think. Well, I think part two has to happen. Yep. For sure. I have, as always, as always, I have more questions than answers. And okay. I have more questions now than when I came into this session. Um, yeah, that was fabulous. I'm going to be spending my weekend actually looking <laughs> at, looking for these books. And um, yeah, really getting a better idea of design thinking. Perfect. I think you've hooked me. Mission accomplished. (laughs) All right. All right. So take care. Job done. Okay. Good. 
everyone. Thanks again for taking the time to listen to the podcast. We really appreciate you setting aside time in your life to listen to this podcast. We don't take that for granted and we appreciate you investing the time. If you found this episode helpful, let us know by giving us a rating and a review on iTunes. That would be awesome. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, why don't you do so? Please subscribe. We'd love to have you become a regular guest here with us on the podcast. It'd be awesome to have you in the community. And with the show notes, you'll find show notes and links on the website, praxispedagogy.com. You might've noticed that over the last few episodes, the show notes have disappeared. And that's because I'm looking for sponsorship to help pay for the show notes. The show notes aren't expensive, but they're they're not cheap to produce either. And so I'm just wondering if there's an opportunity for some of you listeners out there who may want to sponsor an episode or you may want to sponsor a month of episodes to help pay for the show notes. So if that's area of interest for you and you think you'd like to give back to the community in that regard, give me an email, send me a DM on Twitter, be happy to chat with you. It's not that expensive, but it would be awesome to have people sponsor the show and provide show notes for those who really value them. That'd be awesome to have you on board that way. Thanks again for taking the time to listen. We appreciate you being here. Don't forget next week, we're going to be doing Pints and Pedagogy Round 2 with those people from Coast Mountain College. It's going to be exciting. So stay tuned. Have a great week. Take care.